Good morning. Let me add my welcome to you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to worship the Lord with you this morning. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let me begin this morning by showing you my cards. I think that John chapter 9 is the most well-crafted story in all of John's gospel. And I think this for two reasons. First, and just on a literary level, I find that blind man to be a great protagonist. I won't try to convince you right now, but I think we'll see very clearly in this story that this man has all of the traits of a captivating central character. He's an underdog. He's been abandoned by his parents, excluded from society, forced to beg. But on the other side, he's honest. He's brave. He's not afraid to be a little bit sarcastic. The second reason I love this story is because it perfectly embodies John's theme of light. Ever since chapter 1, John has been telling us in various ways that Jesus is the light of the world. But now in chapter 9, John shows us with intense dramatic force What happens when this light shines on particular people? And what we find by the end of the story is that while some are illuminated and made to see, others are blinded by the light. Our passage begins with darkness, utter darkness. Look with me at verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This man, he's lived his entire life in utter darkness. Think of all the wonderful sights that this world has to offer. A smile of approval from your parent. The sunrise over the mountains. Um, A game-winning Half-court buzzer beater shot. Snow, so I've heard. (laughs) I remember a time in my teenage years when my family and I took my then 81-year-old grandmother to Florida for the first time. She'd grown up in rural Tennessee. She had never seen the ocean. And I'll never forget how she just stood at the water's edge with her socks off for hours, it seemed, and stared at the horizon with tears. God's world is teeming with beauty. And this man, he's never seen any of it. But Jesus sees him. 
In fact, Jesus looks at this man with such intensity that his disciples take notice and ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. It's the question we all ask, by the way, in some form or another. It's the inevitable why question of suffering. Why, God? Why me? Why them? But in the disciples' case, this why question that happens in every culture sounds a little bit more like a classic whodunit question. Rabbi, who sinned? It seems that the disciples have already answered the why question to their satisfaction, right? This man was suffering because he or his parents did something wrong. To the disciples and to many people today, this world is like a giant moral slot machine. You put in your coin... A good deed or a bad deed, you crank the lever and out comes the result. A reward or a punishment that fits. In this world, criminals are always caught. Acts of kindness are always appreciated and repaid. It's karma. But Jesus says that this view of the world, it doesn't match with reality. Some criminals get away with their crimes. Some acts of kindness go totally unnoticed and unappreciated. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that's not to say that this man or his parents had never sinned. Everyone has sinned. But what Jesus is saying here is that our slot machine world is broken. Yes, everything happens for a reason, but not everything that happens has a discernible cause. And while it's true in general that sin introduced suffering into our world, that doesn't mean that we can trace back all of our suffering to specific sins. No, if we were to do that, we would be just like Job's friends who kept telling him that he was suffering because he had done something to make God mad. But the world doesn't work like that. And God doesn't act like that. So why is he blind? Why is this particular man blind? He's blind, Jesus says, so that he can be healed. He's blind so that you and I, who are sitting here today, listening to this story, can be amazed at God's work in this man's life. Now, keep in mind that Jesus has just been charged with blasphemy in chapter 8 and chased out of the temple with stones. At this point... In John's Gospel, the light of the world is in hiding. And even the smallest flicker of light could give away his position 
and put his entire mission in jeopardy. I think of that scene near the end of The Sound of Music when the Von Trapp family is hiding in the monastery from the Nazis. And when Liesel sees that it's her beloved Rolf, who's the soldier, who's looking for them, she's overcome with love. And she bursts out of hiding and reveals herself to him, even though it puts her own life in peril. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He simply cannot remain in hiding. He's overcome with love for this man. He must bring into the light God's mysterious justice and love. But this is no ordinary healing. It's a sign. The sixth one in John's Gospel. And like all signs, its purpose is to point us to something that we never would have found on our own. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, I think it'd be safe to say that Jesus' method of healing here strikes us as a bit odd, a bit unconventional. Why does he choose to heal this man in this way? He could have done it any way he wanted to. Why does he choose this route? Well, first of all, John clearly wants us to see that Jesus is reenacting God's work of creation. That just as God got his hands dirty in forming the first man, so now Jesus reaches into the mud to make this blind man new. Second of all, I think John is showing us the tenderness of Jesus. How long do you think it had been since this man, this beggar, had been touched? Who wants to touch a blind beggar? Those of you with children will understand how important the sense of touch is to a child's own sense of security. A newborn needs to be held. A toddler needs to be hugged. Or think of Alan Lamont and how so many of you simply sat beside him and held his hand during his last days. To touch is to love. We realize its value in our weakest of moments, don't we? Jesus touches this man and by doing so restores this man's dignity as someone who's been created in the very image of God. But there's one more thing that John wants us to see here, and that is that Jesus' actions here illustrate 
the gospel for us. When Jesus first meets this man, he's in total darkness. Blind from birth. Never seen a day in his life. But then Jesus speaks to him. He anoints him. He cleanses him. And he's healed. Isn't it interesting how John pauses at the peak of the action to tell us what the name Siloam means? It'd be like me pausing the Super Bowl right in the middle of a Hail Mary to tell you the thread count on the opposing team's jerseys. (laughs) This detail. But we've been with John for nine chapters now. And when he pauses the game, we can trust him. Jesus instructs this man to wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. It's a word that we've already encountered 18 times in John's gospel to refer to Jesus as the one who is sent from the Father. So this is no ordinary pool. This is no ordinary washing. In fact, it's more like a baptism. Because by washing in this pool, this man is identifying himself with the mission and person of Jesus. He washes, he's cleansed, he's healed. And it's all because Jesus saw him in his darkness and had mercy on him. He came and found him. And wouldn't you do that for someone? If you had the power, wouldn't you restore their sight and give them a whole new life? But only God has the power to do this. And actually, that's what makes the rest of this chapter so interesting. Starting in verse 8 we see that this man's baptism comes with a great responsibility, just as ours does. He's been anointed, he's been cleansed, and now he is sent, yes, sent, to bear witness about Jesus. But what happens? His testimony is immediately met with opposition. His his neighbors respond with disbelief. They can't believe he's the same man. And the Pharisees respond with hostility. Jesus, after all, did heal this man on the Sabbath. But underneath the Pharisees' hostility, what gives fuel and motivation to their hostility, to their anger, is fear. They're afraid of Jesus afraid of his newness and of the threat that he poses to their closed ideology. It's really sad, isn't it? This man has just been healed of congenital blindness. They should have been parading him through the streets. They of all people, parading him through the streets, showing him the sights of the city. Praising God. But all they can do is be defensive. Have you ever been like this? 
have you ever been so closed up in your ideology, your doctrine, your upbringing, your tradition, that you just couldn't bring yourself to share in someone else's joy? So a friend tells you how how God has spoken to them in a dream, and you cross your arms. Uh, I recall how a friend of mine shared with the leaders of his church that God had shown him through a series of miraculous events that he was to enter into the ministry. And the rest of the meeting was a discussion about whether God still does miracles today. Why do we do this? Do we not think that God, the Creator, has the ability to surprise us? That He has any mystery, any sense of humor, any side to Him that we would love to know but don't yet know? Now certainly, there are boundaries to our faith. There are, there are ideas that we shouldn't entertain. But to be cl- so closed off to God that we no longer can be surprised by Him, that's not Christian. It's Pharisee. These Pharisees, they keep asking this man over and over again how he was healed. But when he keeps saying, Jesus, they end up getting more and more frustrated. Notice how it all goes downhill. In verse 24, they summon him. In verse 26, they interrogate him. In verse 28, they insult him. And in verse 34, they excommunicate him. One person has pointed out that this blind man is the first person in the gospel to be persecuted because of Jesus. And the persecution that this man faces isn't terribly unlike the kind that many Western Christians are facing today. It's not a violent persecution. It's what we might call a polite persecution. A firing. A fining. An eviction. A loss of accreditation. A shutting down. The list could go on. But whatever the loss, whether it's the loss of a friend or of a job or even of life itself, we all have to learn with this blind man that to be a witness for Jesus is to be a martyr for Jesus. And that it's through the crucible of suffering that we come to know and love and embrace our Savior more fully, more truly, more deeply. I wonder, did you catch the neighbor's um, final question to the man in verse 12? They said to him, where is he? Where is Jesus? And he said, I don't know. I lost him. He got away. 
it strikes me that during this entire interrogation scene from verse 8 to 34, Jesus is nowhere to be found. This man is about to take it on the chin for a Savior he still has never seen. Jesus just bolts. only to return at the very end. And sometimes, our own suffering can feel like that. It can feel like Jesus has left us. Like we're doomed to suffer all alone. But those are the moments when we must believe in the presence of the absent Christ. That He's right there with us. Really. Powerfully. He's always bringing us into deeper knowledge of Himself. So long as we remain faithful to Him. In our New Testament reading this morning, Paul told the Corinthians that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That in God's kingdom, it's the weak who actually eventually come out on top. And as our story in John chapter 9 comes to an end, surely we are looking at a weak man. The Pharisees have kicked him out of the synagogue. He's back on the streets. He's excluded from society once again. It's interesting to mark this man's journey of faith. He just keeps telling his story. And the more he's persecuted, the more he believes. So in verse 11, he simply refers to Jesus as a man called Jesus. I don't know. Some guy called Jesus. Then in verse 17, he's a prophet. In verse 33, he's a man of God. And it all leads to verse 35 when Jesus asks him if he believes in the Son of Man. And he says, show me where he is. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. And he believes and he worships. So the story ends in this irony. The ones who think they can see are blinded by the light. And the ones who know they can't see, their eyes are opened. That's how the gospel works. It's the medicine that heals us. But first, we have to admit that we're sick and blind. And when we do, Jesus, the true light, comes and finds us. There's a beautiful hymn in the Presbyterian church that's taken from a prayer in the Middle Ages. It goes like this. Dear Lord, three things I pray. To see Thee more clearly. To love Thee more dearly. Follow Thee more nearly, day by day. This can be our prayer for Lent. At the heart of it is your prayer for Lent. To see the Lamb more clearly. To love Him more. To follow Him closer than ever. 
Lent is a time for coming out of darkness. It's a time when we reflect on our own spiritual blindness and ask the Lord to come and open our eyes. And when He does that, when He opens our eyes, not only will we be able to see Jesus more clearly, but we will be able to see all of reality in the light that Jesus alone gives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.